This podcast is supported by Anchor FM. If you've ever thought about doing your own podcast, then check out Anchor FM. Anchor FM is a free podcast platform that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Or your tablet if you got one. I really can't recommend these guys enough. It was worth switching over from another platform. Once you set up your podcast, Anchor FM will automatically distribute it to all other platforms like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or such and such. It's very easy, very streamlined, and you can start making money immediately. Download the free Anchor app or log on to anchor.fm to get started. This is a Kitty Pod production. This episode contains material that one may find uncomfortable. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime, the only podcast about true crime in New York's capital region. I'm your host, Jason Bullitt, who you may remember from the Keep It To Yourself podcast, of which this is an offshoot. On this week's episode, we will discuss a murder that happened long before the city in which this took place became what it is today. The city of Troy, New York is one of the three principal cities of the capital region, the others being Albany and Schenectady. Situated on the east bank of the Hudson River, it was dubbed the Collar City owing to its prior manufacturing hub for shirts and the accoutrements therein, cuffs, collars, and the like. Troy is also home to the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, or RPI for short, which is famous for being the oldest private engineering institution in the United States. On the sports front, the college's men's hockey team is the winner of two NCAA championships, doing so in both 1955 and again in 1985. They've also sent many players into the NHL, including Adam Oates and Joey Juno. It's also given the world such luminaries in and out of the science world, such as Dennis Tito, who became the first space tourist just 20 short years ago. Miles Brand, the late president of the aforementioned NCAA. Incidentally, I saw RPI's football team play host at my beloved Castle and Spartans in 2011, which turned out to be a 51-21 loss for the visiting team, with me, my dad, and my brother-in-law in attendance. I remember an older woman asking me if I was related to anybody on the Castle side, but that's all by the by. Its location near the confluence of the Hudson and Mohawk Rivers made Troy an early hub of steel manufacturing, and at one time, was one of the wealthiest cities in the country in the early 20th century. However, the steel industry later moved west to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Troy's prosperity went with it. The latter half of the 20th century saw the sin city of Rensselaer County degraded to such a point that the term Troylet became an apt yet depressing metaphor for the city, even with a shopping mall in the middle of the downtown area known as the Troy Atrium. Before we were all forced to live with the ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic, It was the winter home of the Troy Waterfront Farmer's Market, arguably the most popular in the area. But in the early 21st century, the city fathers saw fit to revitalize Troy. RPI signed on and helped make key investments, which over the course of the past decade gave birth to new businesses ranging from quesadilla joints to bars to clothing shops. A dear friend and former classmate of mine, Frank Sicari, and his wife opened a wedding reception venue known as Talk House in early 2015. About three years later, my favorite hangout, the Franklin Alley Social Club, 
open in the basement of the same building. But again, I digress. The subject of this week's episode takes place long before Troy became the hipster haven it is today. The murder of Erica Schneider and Sam Holly. Before we go any further, we would like to state that most of the information I'm about to impart herein came from an episode of the Investigation Discovery series Dead of Night, of which the 8th episode of its second season discussed this event. On the evening of January 25, 2002, Erica Schneider and Samuel Frost Holly were murdered in their Troy apartment on Brunswick Road. Between the victims, they suffered over 30 stab wounds by a steak knife from their own kitchen, and Erica died of blunt force trauma to the head. Erica was described by the surviving members of her family as an independent woman and something of a free spirit. She, a white female, and Holly, an African-American male, had what's known in romantic comedies as a meet-cute at a bus stop when the former was only 16 years of age. Sounds like the opening lines of a 1950s doo-wop song. Schneider moved in with Holly after her graduation from high school. Her parents objected to the relationship as Holly was almost a decade her senior. Personally, your narrator's paternal grandparents had 10 years separation in age when they got married after World War II, but I digress. Holly's brother, Tremaine Hill, discovered both his and Schneider's body in the living room of their apartment. However, he waited two hours to notify the police, mainly because Holly was a drug dealer who exported cocaine from New York City. Around the time of the murder, drug dealing had become big business in this part of upstate New York. This became a point of contention for Schneider, and she expresses much to Holly in saying that she wanted to get out of the relationship after a year and a half of cohabitation. Once the Troy Police Department finally arrived on the scene, they discovered a palm print had been left on a wall in the living room, and that bloodstains were on a bedsheet in the bedroom. A forensic test would break the case wide open, but initial leads provided from the investigation turned up blank. It turned out initially that the robbery was done by a group known as the Stickmen, a group of criminals who robbed homes in search of guns and money, but not lawyers much to the disappointment of the late Warren Zevon. The Stickmen attempted to rob Holly, according to an inmate who provided a lead that, for once, went somewhere. The lead provided by the aforementioned inmate led to two males, Terrence Batiste and Brian Barry, the latter of whom denied involvement in the murder. It was also sussed out that an informant committed a similar crime three weeks before the murder, just as the year 2002 was several days old. Both Batiste and Barry were indicted in March 2005. Both pled guilty to one of the Stickman robberies. A female name of Teresa Pitcher, who lived in the apartment next door to Holly and Schneider, saw Batiste break into said apartment the night of the murder, thus corroborating the charges. There was enough evidence to indict the pair of murder in October of 2007, but the water would be muddied when word came out of a possible third assailant. The Rensselaer County investigators went to Texas, Massachusetts, the Carolinas, and even Puerto Rico in search of the third assailant, but leads turned up dry once again. Two and a half years later, Batiste and Barry were about to go to trial for the murder, with the prosecution stating that the home invasion and subsequent robbery led to the murder of Holly and Schneider, and while the DNA still warranted an explanation, a match was found that led to the, spoilers, true criminal in this case. After some delay, the DNA found on the bloody palm print on the apartment wall turned out to be that of Michael Mosley, 
At the time of the murder, Mosley was employed as a painter at a nearby SUNY campus and lived with his two children in Averill Park, some 20 miles southeast of Troy. Mosley, according to prosecutors, had an explosive personality which led to violence without warning, to say nothing of a chain of DWI and drug possession charges as well as a history of substance abuse. In June 2009, Mosley had a domestic dispute with his girlfriend. As part of the plea deal, Mosley submitted a sample of his DNA. According to the investigation team charged with this case, Mosley may have had a deeper connection to Batiste and Barry than he let on, but it turned out that this was the act of one person and one person only. And furthermore, the informant lied with the intent to reduce his jail sentence. To quote the rapper MF Doom, complication from the wire testimony was thin. As for the bloody palm print, Mosley told investigators that he had slid off a roof, which left cuts on both his hands. However, it was found out that he had used a cheese grater on his hands to give that illusion. The second visit proved more successful to the investigators, as his alibi proved not to be watertight. Mosley was arrested and charged with murder. It should go without saying that Batiste and Barry, who were originally charged with the murder and thus set up to take the fall, were exonerated. The trial of Michael Mosley began in May of 2011. Mosley stated that while he had a good working relationship with Holly to start, things went south somewhere down the line when Mosley wound up using the drugs he was supposed to sell, popularly known as getting high off your own supply. Mosley went to Holly's apartment in search of the drugs, but the latter refused to give them up, leaving Mosley no other choice but to stab Holly with a steak knife, the injuries from which he died almost immediately. Schneider heard the commotion from the bedroom and rushed to the scene of panic, only to be killed herself later on. According to the investigators, which is a phrase I'm sure you've loved hearing in this episode, Mosley then took the ringing cordless phone and put it underneath the mattress while ransacking the apartment for drugs. Initially, Mosley's explanation had checked out, see hand, comma, injured, but at trial, he changed his tune, saying that he cut his hand snowboarding with his son near the apartment and that Holly asked the elder Mosley for a ride to Albany the following morning. Also, Mosley panicked when he saw the carnage. The prosecution called BS on the snowboarding story, saying that it was 51 degrees and pouring rain on the day. Why they had to drag Steve Caparizzo into this mess, I'll never know. After six hours of deliberation, the jury handed down a verdict of guilty on two counts of murder. After four weeks of trial, Michael Mosley was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Richard McNally, the Rensselaer County District Attorney at the time, summed up Mosley's shoddy defense as though he was the legendary fictional detective Frank Colombo. We gave Mr. Mosley a shovel, and he dug his own hole. Just one more thing. For the first time in this series, we have an epilogue of sorts on which to get you out. In 2012, a full decade after the murders, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who's really made a name for himself during this pandemic, signed into law a change in the collection of DNA. Whereas it was previously made secure only if one was convicted of specific crimes and felonies, such would henceforth be the case in misdemeanor convictions. If the laws today had been on the books at the time of the murders of Erica Schneider and Samuel Holly, a conviction would have been obtained much earlier. Before we end this episode, I have an announcement of coming attractions for this podcast. 
Seeing as this pandemic shutdown might be extended here in New York State past the original May 15th deadline, I've booked out the next two months or so in terms of episodes. That's because I might be going back to work by the middle of next month, or I might not. You never know. So with that in mind, I hereby announce the following. Next week, we'll discuss the murder of a child named Shaheen Nelligan. On May 21st, the arrest of Yassin Aref and Mohammed Hossein, two imams whose arrests made headlines across the nation and throughout the world. After the Memorial Day weekend, we'll throw the spotlight on the murder of Dan and Lisa Harrington and their stepson. This will all lead up to the month of June, which will mark the fifth anniversary of the prison break from Danamora. It is my hope that this will be a multi-part series as it took virtually the whole month to resolve this issue which not only gripped the North Country with fear, but also enthralled the entire Empire State. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crime. You can also listen to this podcast as well as the Keep It To Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the platform you're choosing. If you've enjoyed what you heard, you can also give a five-star rating and a good write-up on Apple Podcasts. And also tell your friends, too. Word of mouth always helps. Till next week when we discuss the murder of Shaheen Nelligan, I'm your host, Jason Bullitt, reminding you to stay safe, wash your hands, maintain social distancing, and remember, we'll all get through this together. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.